You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.church. Well, good morning, church. So good to see everyone. Uh, My name is Ryan, one of the pastors here at Stonegate. And I just want to say, if you're visiting with us, how happy we are that you are with us this morning, uh, taking time out to join us uh, to worship God. And we would love to do everything we can to help you get connected. So there should be a connect card in the seat back nearby you. And I would just ask maybe if you want to fill that out at some point during the service and later on during the offering time, if you want to drop it in the basket, we would uh, be really grateful for that. And we'd love to be able to follow up with you. Um, I I, I just hope too, uh, if if you're visiting with us, this is a place where you feel welcome and encouraged and loved. And we're just really glad uh, that you would be here. So I just wanted to lead out with saying that. Um, Yesterday uh, was kind of a fun day for me. It was my uh, son Samuel's first birthday. So I got a picture for him up here, and uh, because it was his first birthday, we decided to introduce him to sugar, and so this was a new concept for him. We'd kind of been on the, I'm kind of a no sugar person in general, we're kind of stingy with the sugar, and so we busted it out, and we just let him go for it, and uh, to, to no surprise, he loved it. And it was just kind of one of those really fun moments of watching um, his life unfold over this last year, uh, all the joys, all the ups and downs all the uh, first pivotal moments, all the uh, fun-filled nights of sleeplessness, right, parents? Uh, All those fun moments that come along the way. But, you know, as my wife and I were just talking last night, we wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, He has been an absolute blessing to us. He's been filled with a a sense of just curiosity and, and happiness that just kind of pervades our entire house because of his presence. He is a, he's a gift, and we, we value him, and we cherish him, and we love him. And, and why is that? Why is there just this deep affection for, for him? Well, one, I mean, he's our son. We love him very much. But there, there's something actually deeper wired into that. In some ways, that's how we all are when we look at our kids or when we see a new life, when we see all the promise, when we see all the, the beauty, all the laughter, all the joy that comes inside of it. And part of that is because of the way we are made. Partly because we have a heavenly father that feels that way about us, that life is a gift, that life is amazing, that life is a joy. And that's why as a church, that's why even as as people of the Bible, not people of politics, but people of Jesus, we are unabashedly pro-life for all of life, throughout all of life, in all of life. We love life. Because God is the author of life. He is the maker of life. Of life. If you want, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start there this morning in verse 25. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll have it up on the screen for you. But here's where we begin to see just that very reality that God is the maker of life. But we also see what is altogether distinct and precious and significant about human life, about my life, about your life. And whether you are a Christian or not, you need to know that you have significant and altogether holy and sacred value because you are made in God's image. Because you are made in God's image, you have dignity and you have value and you have worth, not because of something you can achieve, but rather because it's received because of whose image you are made in. So this is what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 25, and it says, And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. So you just see that progression, that there's a, there's a creation of the world around us, of life, of, of livestock, of, of animals, and there's, there's the cows probably coming across, and according to their kinds, and, and you have all the other creatures coming across, and they're, they're made according to their kind. But then verse 26, it says something different when it talks about the making of people. It says, then God said, let us, referring to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is alive, uh, being alive, uh, having a lively nature is, a, is, a, is an axiomatic, it's a foundational, it's a clear characteristic of what God is. God is life. God is life. I mean, it's so obvious, it even sounds weird to say that, doesn't it? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
So you have all the other creatures come across, the beasts are made and after their kind. And, and, and it says something altogether about humanity that we are not put in that same lot, are we? But rather we are distinct, we are set apart. We are made in the image of God. We are made in the likeness of God. That is altogether one of the most significant and profound things that we can realize and even embrace. What does it mean, though, to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be made in the likeness of God? I mean, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard that kind of language before. This is known as the doctrine of the Imago Dei, meaning that we're made in God's image. Well, simply put, it just means that we are, we are a representative. We are made to mimic. We are made to image and represent God. That you and I are, are, are little images, that we are little icons of God. Have you ever thought about, why did God say, don't make a graven image of me? Why was that one of his commands? Well, the reason why is because we didn't need graven images when he had already made us. We are little images of God. Let us make man in our image. Think about this too. Just imagine for, for a second, a few years ago, I had the privilege uh, to go to Washington, D.C. And I remember standing at the Lincoln Monument and looking at that statue and, and, and wondering, why do we make statues like this? Why do we make uh, a, a big bronze statue of Abraham Lincoln? And, you know, the answer is kind of obvious. It's there to remind us of his significance. It's there to remind us of who he was. It's there to remind us of what he stood for. It's there to remind us of his virtues and his qualities and his characteristics. It's meant to display who he was. So if you think about that, if you were to leave a statue somewhere, you're wanting people to remember someone. You're wanting them to be able to think upon him, to see what he or she is like. So just imagine what it would mean if God creates seven billion little statues to roam around this earth. It's his way of displaying. It's his way of saying, I want the world to know what I'm like. I want the world to see who I am through my creation, through these image bearers. They're meant to reflect and communicate who God is. That's what our job is. That's what life is. Life is a reality in which we reflect to the world who God is, what he's like. Of course, that image is, is marred because of the fall. And of course, that image has, 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 has had a brokenness to it ever since the fall, that you and I have looked at God and we said, God, we don't want to reflect your image. We don't want to do your will. We want to do our will. Not your will be done, but our will be done. And so the image of God, it's not like it got washed away in us, but it has been marred, it has been stained, it has been shattered. And so we now live in a world where often not all of life is given the dignity and the value and the worth that it deserves. Rather, we live in a world, a fallen world, that can sometimes be very anti-life. Think about what Satan says. Satan even says he came to, to prowl like a roaring lion, to destroy and to cause death and destruction. Why did Satan do that? Why, why does Satan love racism? Why does Satan love murder? Why does Satan love mass shootings? Why does Satan love abortion? Because all of those acts, they're anti-life. They are the desecration. They are the destruction. They are the defacing of what is made in the image of God of what God finds holy, of what God finds valuable, because inside of you and me, every human being is inherent dignity, value, and worth. What do I mean by inherent? It means it, it's absolute. It can't be changed. It can't be taken away. It's not something that you achieve. It's something that you've received. Your value, your dignity, your worth is because you are an image bearer of God. You are made in his likeness. We live in a world, though, that because of the fall often forgets this. And in our sin, in our rebellion, in our desire to push away from God, we can reject life. We can become anti-life. One of the ways that our culture particularly has been particularly anti-life is in the act of abortion. Since Roe v. Wade was legalized close to 40 years ago, 
There's been over 50 million to 60 million murders in the United States of preborn babies, of image bearers, of little ones who have dignity, value, and worth, who are made in God's image. And what leads to a lot of this anti-life behavior? Well, there are many answers to that question, but John Piper provides us this heart-level summary of what's often taking place in a culture such as ours that doesn't value or love life the way that God does. He says, we kill unborn babies because they cut across our desires. They stand in the way of our unconstrained self-enhancement. And we live in a culture where self-enhancement and self-advancement and comfort and convenience is God. See, I want to be very clear this morning. Being pro-life, it's not a women's issue. It's not a political issue. It's a God issue. We are not given value because we're wanted or because we're special. We're given value because of whose image we are made in, of whose we are, of who we belong to. And you need to know that. You need to know, no matter your story, no matter what you think of yourself when you look in the mirror, when God thinks of you, he thinks of image bearer. You have dignity, you have value, you have worth. But the issue of abortion starts first and foremost in our hearts. Are we pro-life people? Are we people that love life because God made life? Because all of life is valuable to him? It's really the question for us. And I want to be clear too, you know, it, it can be really interesting when we, we talk about topics like this of like, is this a political issue? Should we be talking about this in church? And I just want to be honest with you. The issue of life was a theological issue long before it was a political issue. Um, Jesus too, if, if you look at him, there's, there's nothing in him that's going to particularly, Jesus is going to sign off entirely on a political platform. He's not Republican. He's not Democrat. So this is not a politically partisan issue. This is a God issue. This is an issue for you and I to ask ourselves first and foremost, will we have kingdom eyes or will we have cultural eyes? Will we conform to what scripture says and what God says about life or will we often crater and cater to what culture says about life? So I want to be very clear. We're not a political church. You will never hear a sermon on tax reform at Stonegate. You just won't. I mean, it probably wouldn't be any good either. So, But the reason you won't is because that's not really a theological issue. I mean, maybe you could make a weird case of it being a theological issue, but I don't think it is. But this is a theological issue. Long before it was a political issue, it's a theological issue. It's at the, the core of what is life, who made life, who is the author of life, what is life? That's the question. That's what we're putting before us today. So as a church, I want to be unabashedly clear. We reject all things that are anti-life, not just abortion. This isn't just a sermon about abortion, but we reject all things that are anti-life. And what do I mean by anti-life? Anything that objectifies, trivializes, or commodifies life is anti-life. Anything that objectifies, anything that trivializes, or anything that commoditizes life, we reject it. See, anytime you begin to look at a person and you strip them of their inherent dignity, value, and worth, you begin to not find them beautiful, but rather maybe useful for your pleasure or your consumption, you've moved into anti-life behavior. This is why, you know, I'll just, if we're stepping on landmines this morning, let's just go for it. Um, if you're consuming pornography, that's anti-life. That's the objectification of life. You're taking a life, you're taking an image bearer, you're taking someone that God loves, someone that is precious to God, and you're consuming them for your pleasure. It's anti-life. It's disrespecting and defacing what is precious to God. Sex trafficking is a major issue in our world today. There are over five to eight million people, mostly women, that are in sex trafficking slavery. That's anti-life. That's against life. That is the objectification of life. Slavery is a real issue still in our world today. There are over 40 million people in our world 
that are currently in slavery, more than any point in human history. That is anti-life. If you exploit workers and you're a business owner, that is anti-life. If you take advantage of people in relationships, if you objectify them for what they look like or what they can do for you or how they might please you or pleasure you and then you discard them when they're no longer useful, that is anti-life. That is the objectification of what God finds to be holy, to what he made, to what is created in his image. Anytime Anytime we take what God cherishes and we consume it for our pleasure, That is anti-life. When God looks at that, it's the akin of, uh, let me give you a few illustrations of it. Think of it this way. It's It's like looking at someone's family photo and defacing it. God's looking at his family photo, his people, his creation. And when we come along and we deface or destroy other humans for our gain or our pleasure or our convenience, or because it's easier for us to even, not just sins of commission, but even sins of omission. There are things that you and I can do that the Lord is convicting and calling us today. He's going to call us to take some steps to be more pro-life. That if we don't do them, that also is sin. That is a sin of omission. So I'm not just saying there's sins of commission that are anti-life. There are sins of omission. Things that you ought to do that you don't do. That's also anti-life. Or just imagine this. This is like saying you love an author. You love all of his books and you love all of them, but every time you get them, you, you burn them. It's, it's a really weird thing. You'd burn a bunch of books. I mean, you can't say you love God, the author of life, and then burn his creation and misuse his creation. You can't do it. See, we live in a world that implicitly and whispers to us in many subtle forms and fashion it's okay in some ways to use life, to dismiss life, to objectify life, especially if it might be uncomfortable for us or it might be inconvenient for us. But this isn't the way of God. This isn't the way of God's kingdom. What it means to be human is we look around and we say, no matter of your disability or your background or what you can achieve, your identity has been received because of who made you. God made you, and he knows you, and he loves you, and he cares about you. How do I know this? Well, look at Ephesians 2.10. There's a very interesting word. Uh, The ESV translated this way. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're his workmanship created for Christ Jesus. So it's a very, very interesting phrase. Um, The ESV translates it workmanship. Um, Some of the other translations, instead of using the word workmanship, they use the word masterpiece. They use the word masterpiece. And I really like that because the the Greek word there actually is is poema. Poema, which is where we get our word for, for poem. It's where we get our word for poem. Have you ever thought about that? You are you are God's poem. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's craft, craftsmanship. You are his, 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 his beautiful creation. Notice what it doesn't say there. It doesn't say you are God's assembly line. You are God's like mass-produced dishwashing factory. You're just one after another coming off to the conveyor belt. That's not how a masterpiece works. That's not how workmanship actually takes place. It's actually a painstaking detail where you have a crafted moment for each and every one, and it's made in a very distinct and customized way. Think about a gift that you've been given, and sometimes, no matter how nice it may be, but if at the end of the day you're looking at maybe a bag or maybe um, some type of, of, of artwork that someone gives you and there's a label on it that says made in China. You're like, that's great. It's really nice and you're going to appreciate it. But what, what, have you ever had that moment where someone made you something that was handcrafted? And, and how much more significant and valuable it feels to you. Um, I've got all sorts of um, mangly made coffee mugs around my house that my kids have made for me over the years. But I love them because of who made them. I love them because they weren't mass-produced, but rather they were made individually. And when God thinks of you, he thinks of you as his workmanship. We deeply value things that are handmade, that are customized. 
and God has been customizing you and making you and handcrafting you long before you ever even realized it. In fact, that's where the psalmist in Psalm 139 tells us that very reality, that even before you were born, even in your pre-born moment, you were created by God. God was already at work in forming you and shaping you in your mother's womb. He was attentively involved. He was at work already in that moment. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made. No matter the insecurities that you have when you might look in the mirror, when God looks at you, he smiles. He's filled with joy. He goes, that's my masterpiece. That's my masterpiece. That's my masterpiece. He loves you. And as, as corny as it might sound, I want you to hear this. You are special. You are. You're special to God. He loves you, not just the idea of you or the category of humans, but he loves you particularly. And he cares about you, and you are his masterpiece. And long before you even knew it, he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. My mom used to crochet these blankets when I was a kid, and I would watch her do it, and the amount of detail that she put into that was incredible. The thoughtfulness that she put into it. In fact, we still have those blankets around at my sister's house because they were handmade, and they were made by her. She knit them together. It's a beautiful thing. And that's why as Christians, we stand strongly for those who are still pre-born. We do because we know that God is already knitting them together. Those are his little masterpieces. What's interesting about how America's found itself in this cultural moment where we're coming up on 40 years of Roe v. Wade is when that decision was made, science was way less advanced than it is now. Science has actually made massive advancements in the last 40 years that answer all sorts of questions that they couldn't answer when Roe v. Wade was decided. In fact, if you go back and you read the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, one of the statements in there by the justices was that they, we really didn't know when life began, that we really didn't have an idea, that it was a mystery question that really would not ever be able to be solved. But lo and behold, science has actually become the friend of the pro-life cause, Noted embryologist Kevin Prasad says this, it is unequivocally clear an embryo is the beginning of a human life. He's not a Christian. But you won't find a college embryology textbook that says anything else about when life begins. The science is settled. It's clear. Life begins at conception. Scott Klusendorf, a uh, noted apologist and uh, writer and thinker on the issue of pro-life causes, he has an incredible book that I'd recommend to everyone in this room called The Case for Life. And he gives a really helpful acronym to show some of the logic, some of the logic that's often at play and often just to have these kind of conversation to show that there is no difference in how we think about a baby in the womb and how we think about a newborn baby a couple days after. So here's his acronym. I want to share this with you guys. Hopefully it's helpful for you as you engage in these conversations. He said one of the first ones is, is just the letter S for size. He says just because an embryo is much smaller, just because a baby in the womb is much smaller, does not mean that they are less valuable. Um, a woman that is five foot two and a man who is six foot five do not have a different level of value. They are equally valuable. Size does not determine value. A 14-year-old is no more valuable than a four-year-old. Uh, four Size does not determine value. If it did, then Shaq would be like the most valuable person on the earth. I mean, it'd be a weird way to rank humans, right? That's a weird way. Or number two for in the SLED acronym is level of development. Level of development. Sure, a preborn baby is less developed than you and I, but an infant is less developed than you and I. Are they less valuable? Absolutely not. Once again, a three-year-old, they're less developed than a 13-year-old, but they're not less valuable, are they? We don't think for a moment that an infant, all those beautiful, amazing little kids that are over in our kids' ministry right now, that no one would raise their hand if I said, do any of you feel like they're less valuable than the people in this room? You'd say, of course not. 
They're just, they're at that stage. They're at that level of development. So level of development is a failing argument. Just because someone's in a preborn state still developing doesn't make them less valuable. Uh, third letter, E for environment. Um, where you are has no bearing on what you are. Where you are has no bearing on what you are. If I'm scuba diving or I'm spelunking or I'm on top of Mount Everest or I'm an astronaut in outer space, my environment does not change my value. And we know this. And after um, being in the delivery room for uh, uh, three, all three of my kids being born, I can just tell you there was no real distinct difference in them in the 10 minutes before they were born and the 10 minutes after. There was no some magical bestowing of life dust that was put upon them as they traveled the eight inches down the birth canal. They were still the same person. So environment does not determine value. And last one, degree of dependency. This is always an interesting argument. Sometimes it's the idea that a baby is dependent upon a mother for survival. Well, in, in some ways, so is a six-week-old. So is a nine-week-old. In fact, I, I'm terrified to think what would happen at my house if I just left all three of my kids there right now. Like, it would, they'd probably all be dead in about an hour. Like, something would go horrific. Or, or just think about someone who has Alzheimer's or a disability. Are we really willing to say that because someone has a greater level of dependency that they are less valuable? Of course not. Of course not. So this SLED acronym takes apart some of these arguments, even logically. So we've seen theologically, we've seen scientifically, and now we've even seen logically why pro-life is such a solid, persuasive argument. So we are pro-life church throughout all of life for all of life. Okay. Let me just pause and say this. Um, I'm not naive to the statistics of how pervasive abortion has been in America. Um, it breaks my heart. And I know that there's men and women walking into this room today that have participated in abortion. And I know that there's a lot of shame and maybe even guilt or regret that could come along with that. Maybe you're a man that pressured a woman into an abortion. Maybe you're a woman who didn't feel like you had any other options and you felt helpless and you felt lost and you felt like that was your only option. I just want to say to you, there's good news. In fact, there's the best news in the world. The first gospel that was ever preached was in Genesis 3. And it was right after the fall and I love the first gospel that was ever preached because it's God reminding Eve that what would come from her womb, that what would come from her pregnancy lineage one day would not be for her judgment, but rather for her salvation. Have you ever thought about that? That is actually from the womb of a woman that all of our salvation would come. And that's Jesus, who would be formed into a person who was just like you formed through a, a knitting together in his mother's womb. And that person was Jesus who would come and he would die a death for all sin. For all sin. Sin of pornography, the sin of sex exploitation, the sin of convenience and comfort over messiness and struggle to be truly pro-life throughout all of life, and even the sin of abortion. Jesus doesn't want anyone to remain today in a place of being captive to their sin or their shame. But rather, he came to wash that away through the cross that he would hang on for you and for me. You are so precious in God's sight. You are so loved by God. You are such a masterpiece of God that he would give his life for you as a ransom to die for your sin. And not just die for your sin, but then also to bring you into a family, to adopt you, which we're going to talk more about here in a second. So I want you to know there's hope. I want you to know there's life. Paul tells us in Romans 10, verse 13, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And no matter what you walk in here today having done, I don't care what your story is, I know that that is true for you if you call upon the name of the Lord. He is sure to save. 
and that he loves you. So church, what are we doing in this area? What are we doing to make a difference? Because, you know, I don't think it's enough, and I think you would all agree with me, it's not enough to just talk about this, is it? So one of the ministries that's in our area that we absolutely love and we've been so excited to be able to partner with over the years is First Look, which is a crisis pregnancy center. And First Look does a tremendous ministry in this area throughout our community. You need to hear this. This will blow your mind. And this is all for free, and this is confidential services that they offer. They offer services for fathers um, in parenting classes and often encouraging them to, to, to step away from uh, having a, a advocate a, a woman to, to go through with an abortion. They offer prenatal classes, parenting classes, adult and infant CPR. They offer life skill classes. They offer ultrasounds and domestic violence screening. They offer counseling and Bible study. And they offer, they offer healing after abortion. First Look is passionately committed to coming alongside women and also men to help them choose life, to be pro-life, to be for life. And this is my favorite thing of all. I mean, I teared up when I read this earlier this week. This is just blow your mind. Through the work of First Look throughout this last year, over 170 women walked in there that were thinking about abortion and instead chose life. There's 170 people, image bearers, today breathing because of the work of First Look. Isn't that amazing? That's life. And so church, we set you up for this in a good way. In December, we asked you to come and to give generously for our Christmas Eve offering so we could make a major gift to first look as they look at putting down roots and building a new facility um, in Waxahachie. And because of your generosity, because of your giving, because of your pro-life hearts, we're going to be able to give them a $50,000 donation toward that. Isn't that awesome? It's amazing. It really is. It's absolutely amazing. And so church, that's what we want to do to be pro-life people. But the pro-lifeness of God doesn't just stop there. This is how ridiculously awesome God is. You ready for the most amazing part of all this? He, he also wants us to be pro-life after people are born, after babies are born. And so we want to step into moments of adoption and foster care as well. We want to be men and women who look at those around us that are vulnerable, those that need homes, those that need moms and dads, and we step into those roles and callings. Why? Because adoption is at the very heart of the gospel. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Look at that. Once again, it's just speaking of that, that the lineage, that God's sending his son for the adoption of his people starts through the, the pre-born process, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. What was the whole ministry of Jesus about? What was the whole work of reconciliation of Jesus about? It was that we would be adopted, that we would be brought into a new family, that we would be considered heirs of the kingdom of God, that we would be given a father, a good, good father. This is the gospel. Verse 6 says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We get to cry, Father, when we look at God. We get to say, that's my dad. That's my father. And God has always had a heart for the fatherless. He loves the fatherless. He has a particular bias toward the fatherless. You read that all throughout scriptures, Exodus 22, Psalm 68. Time and time again, God's got a preoccupation for those who are in need of a dad. And I want to be clear about something. As Christians, we don't necessarily look at adoption and say we want to pursue adoption or we want to advocate for adoption, maybe because of a biological reason. We advocate for adoption because of a theological reason. And that's because you and I were orphans, that you and I were without a heavenly father, and Jesus would come and he would bring us home. 
You need to know this. At some point in eternity past, Jesus stood before the judge of the universe. The same way if you're adopting a kid, you stand before a judge. Jesus stood before the judge of the universe, and he paid for you. And he said, I'll take them. And then he gave you a new name, son and daughter of God. You got a new family name, just like you do when you're adopted. You got a new family name. And when God the Father said to Jesus, will you take them? Do you want them? Do you want to bring them home? Do you want to bring them into your family? He said, yes, they're mine. I want them. I want them all. Standing before God, he promised to provide for you. He promised to care for you. He promised to protect you. He promised to look out for you. He promised to prepare a place for you. You were adopted by God. That's good news, isn't it, church? So we, as, as adopted sons and daughters of God, we need to do like our dad did. And we need to have hearts that are warm and receptive and eager to explore what it looks like for us to be involved with adoption. And I want to be honest, I get that it's messy. I've walked alongside a lot of friends over the years, and I've seen the whole spectrum of adoption stories. And sometimes, man, it goes really, it goes really great. And then other times, I've walked with some folks that it's gone really bad, and it's been really hard, and it's very messy. But one of the marks of a disciple that we talk about regularly here at Stonegate is that we want to risk. A disciple is willing to step out to find out. And what it means to trust God is that we obey when he convicts and when he leads and when he commands. And the Lord commands all of us to have a heart for the fatherless, to think about ways that we can be involved with adoption. Not because it's easy, because it's not, church. And I love looking around this room right now because I see all sorts of faces and people that have leaned into this in very significant ways and they can easily raise their hand and testify to you this is not easy. But you know what else was not easy? Our adoption. Jesus walked across the universe. He got all the way into the mess. He dealt with very rebellious, dysfunctional people so that we could be brought home. Can you imagine that? Can you believe that? That Jesus would get into the mess. He didn't go like, you know what? That's really going to put a crimp in my schedule. Going down there for 33 years, hanging on a cross, that's definitely uncomfortable. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of energy. It's going to take a lot of resources. No. He said they need a dad. They need a family. They need to be saved. I'm going to bring them home. I'm not going to count the cost. I'm going to bring them home. So I'm not, saying, I'm not saying today that every single one of us, the Lord is saying you absolutely have to adopt someone to, to be right with him. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think for every Christian, we need to be sensitive and regularly seeking and asking the Lord how he would have us advocate for the vulnerable and what our role would be in caring for the orphan. That I am saying. So not, maybe not all of us will adopt or foster, but all of us can be involved. And what I would say to all of you, please, today, don't let apathy or discouragement or helplessness or hopelessness set in. We may not be able to change the world tomorrow, but God can change your heart today. And if he changes your heart today, he will change someone else's world tomorrow. Isn't that amazing? So what might God be asking you to do? How might he be asking you to get involved? What would it look like if we were a church for the next 50 years that was willing to risk and ask these kind of adventurous and dangerous questions? Um, I want to invite Carly out. Uh, she's our orphan care director, and she's going to talk to us about some of the ways we can be involved. Um, and as she comes out too, I just also want to say an incredibly big thank you to uh, Jansen and Jessica, who have also led our orphan. Come over here a little bit more into the light so everyone can see you. This is Carly. Give it up for Carly. She's awesome. Um, but thanks to Jessica and Jansen for leading out in such incredible ways over the last couple of years, even in our orphan care ministry. And now Carly is uh, heading that up for us. And uh, I just wanted her to share a few ways that we could all consider being involved, but um, also just for all of you to know who she is. Um, we're really excited about what she's doing over in our orphan care ministry and some of the things that we have on the horizon for us in the next couple of years. But maybe just start out telling us, why is this particularly important to you? And How's the Lord got a hold of your heart in this area? Um, I think since I was a kid, I've always been like a justice seeker, a rule follower. There's right and wrong. 
um, which was probably not really fun to parent. My mom is here somewhere, so I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I have one of those at home now, and she it's hard. You. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but when I looked at scripture and I saw that it says that um, like true religion is running toward the orphan and the widow, it doesn't say like sitting passively and them coming to you. It says you are pursuing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I saw a God that pursued, that um, was fair and just and right, um, that just really lit my heart on mm-hmm. fire. So we um, adopted over five years ago. We have a son named Titus, and he has a little sister that was born three months after that, so that was a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) And uh, so that's just kind of my personal story. That was a private adoption, but how it ties to Stonegate is we couldn't have done that without Stonegate. Um, The Sunday he was born, my husband's a firefighter, and of course he was on shift, um, and I get a text of a baby on my phone. He's here. I'm like, cool. Uh, My husband's not. So let me figure out where my other kid's going. Uh, And Cody said, you have to go to church. I was like, well, I can't go to church. I need to pack my bags. I need to figure out, like, what babies need that you've never met before. And um, he said, well, Rodney's going to write us a check. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll show up. So I sat, like, in the back corner. That got your attention. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We kind of needed that. Um, So I sat in the back corner of the um, convention center trying, like, not to hyperventilate. And Rodney walked over at the end of worship and handed me a $9,000 check and said, go get your baby. Mm. Um, No questions asked. No one's ever asked me for that money back. Um, No one has ever said, okay, we put you on a payment plan so you can, like, it was just given. Um, And them, along with the Mills, along with Dave Hansen, we wouldn't have our son uh, without them. So amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, And speaking of which, we also wanted to introduce you to one family that is walking through the adoption process right now. So the Barr family wanted to have them come out and join us here for a moment. And uh, also Carly, just give us a little bit of an update on where they've been in their process and tell a little bit about their story. I'm actually going to let Jonathan do it. He said he wanted to, so I don't want to. So I'm going to let him. It's really intimidating being up here. Uh, (laughs) So uh, the adoption foster care... um, idea has kind of been in our in a conversation we've had since we've been um since we've been dating to marriage we've been married like eight years um and after we have three kids you can see up there um after our third one we felt a big release that the next one would be um adopted and um we kind of were like wow what does that mean um we started like back in april we kind of looked at the kind of foster care versus um private adoption um ended up just through circumstances, uh, basically deciding to go with the, like a domestic private mm-hmm. adoption. Um, like about that time, it was like last, like late summer, early fall, mm-hmm. um, was when like New York and all these crazy abortion bills were kind of going in and we're like, man, like if we claim to be like really pro-life and like we're talking about, um, we need to like really do that. And also yeah. one thing that's really convicted us since we've kind of gone through the process of getting all the paperwork done and all the things, it's like there's there's a family attached to that yeah. um, and being really like pro-life, like not only for like pro-baby, but pro-life for the mom too, for the yeah. birth mom. And so one big hope that we have with this is having a relationship with like the family on the other side, like just being as open as we possibly can. Like we want to mm-hmm. like know you, we want you to be involved, like, you know, yeah. and this. So um, back last December, we became um, homesteady ready. So now we're just in the waiting period of just like waiting on a phone call basically yeah. and who knows what the Lord will bring. Yeah. And what's it look like um, for you guys on the financial journey, too? Because I know that's a big obstacle a lot of folks face. And so what have you been doing? And maybe let us in on some of the costs associated with it. Yeah, it's, it's big. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're like, um, we're a single income family. We got three kids. Um, you know, we do not have an abundance of money whatsoever. And um, but God, but God put us in our house back like six or seven years ago. Um, to where we were able to refinance and get a big portion of that um, from there. Like, God just worked that out. Um, our home group was incredibly generous and completely went behind our backs and, like, actually, um, like, raised money for us to where it basically covered the entire, like, initial application cost. Um, like, Stonegate has been just incredibly gracious with us as well. Um, there's been a lot of overtime opportunities of work, so there's been some sacrifice there of just, like, working overtime. Um, our family has been um, supportive, so it's just been... God has just poured out. It's been um, just a huge 
burden gets kind of yeah. off of just like, man. And you guys need a total of about 40,000, right? It's 40,000. Yeah. yeah. And basically. you're about at 26, so need another yeah, 14,000. exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. You guys are all in. It's really incredible basically. to hear. So can we yes, pray sir. for you about that? I'd love to pray for yes, you guys. Please. God, thank you for uh, the Barr family, their willingness to step into this, uh, to, to adopt, to have a heart of adoption uh, because they've been adopted. And Lord, we are so thank you for, thankful for uh, the work that you've done in their lives, and we're already praying uh, for, the, for the child that you've already um, set aside, that you know, uh, that you formed and knitted together, that it's precious to you to be part of their family. And Lord, I just ask that you give them the strength and the guidance and the wisdom and the faith as they walk along this journey. In your name, amen. And, you know, one last thing we want to say to you guys today. Um, we would love, as a church family, to be able to pay that last $14,000 for you and get you all the way home uh, so that, that adoption's funded. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I want to say this, too. Uh, Stonegate has an incredibly unique story in two ways. Uh, one, um, we care about this a lot. It's important to us uh, because it's important to God. It's one of our distinctives. We want to value the vulnerable. Uh, we want to be pro-life for all of life, in all of life, through all of life. And uh, two, we, uh, we don't want anyone in this room to have finances be the obstacle for you. Um, if you are looking and the Lord is calling you and you feel even a sense of conviction that you need to explore adoption, um, we want to help make that happen for you. Uh, the Lord has provided many miracles, like just even what we're having right now, of just being able to make that happen throughout Stonegate. It is a precious and unique reality as part of our church family. So I hope if uh, the Lord's speaking to you today that you would really consider that. Um, I just want to close our time today. Uh, we have a video from Jamie Lee who uh, is a, a guy who was adopted, and uh, this is just a little bit of his story, and I want to let him have the last word of our time together this morning. So check out this video. My adoption story, um, I think to me, is just the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. My birth mom is one, I still know her, I still love her. So she had to make just a really hard decision. It really wasn't something that she was like, I don't want these kids. It was a matter of she couldn't provide for four kids. I was adopted when I was 13 months old. We always knew that we were adopted growing up. My, my parents, there was never a time that my parents came to me and said, hey Jamie, you're adopted. It was just something that we knew. But there was always something that I felt different than everyone else. My mom didn't have me, my mom adopted me. It's kind of confusing, but it was also just part of who I was. I remember one day in the baseball locker room when I was, you know, I was a junior, and a guy came up to me and he was pushing me and, and telling, and like, he was upset at me for something. And he told me, he said, you're not loved because you weren't loved by your dad. Um, and so to hear that from someone, I mean, that's the first time I've ever been like, man, there's something wrong with me. And I, I, was, I was a kid that was trying to stick my chest out and be the tough guy. Um, and at that moment, I couldn't be. Like, I was torn apart. And I, was, I remember sitting on our bench in our locker room and just crying. To hear someone verbally say you're not loved because of a true thing that has happened in your life, the way that I see God in that picture is he is that perfect dad that, um, when you don't feel loved and when you don't feel cherished and you don't know like if someone loves you, like there is a father in heaven that cares so deeply for you. Adoption is like one of the coolest things in the Bible. Um, when Paul talks about it, he uses a specific word to describe what God does um, when you enter into his family. Um, and that word is adopted. Um, and what that word means is you couldn't be just sent off. You couldn't be um, rejected from your family. Like if you were adopted, you were, that is your family. Um, and what God does for us is he adopts us and he holds on to us. So for me, adoption and like what it looks like with the Lord is he chose me. Um, way before I was born, like he chose me as his son and he's never going to go anywhere. He's never going to uh, walk away. Yeah, God is, he's true and he is who he says he is. My birth dad left the day I was born and he came back in and out, I think, from an early age until I was adopted. Hearing those things about my birth dad and then seeing the actions of my dad completely shifted 
my view of who God is. And I think it helped me understand that God is more like my dad that, that came beside me and he stayed with me. He never left. Like He has always been there. He's fought for me. Um, he has um, pushed me to be the man I am today. Adoption is such a cool story of an earthly picture of what Jesus came to do. Amen. Amen. Could you pray with me? God, thank you for adopting us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us your children. God, I just ask that you would you would move in mighty ways in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds right now that every single one of us would heed the call of what it looks like for us to, to love the fatherless, to go after the orphan, to care for those without a family. Because, Lord, that's exactly what you did for us. You saw us orphaned, you saw us without a family, and you chose to adopt us by your grace. And so as we enter into a time of communion, we are just overwhelmed and reminded by your goodness that you are a, a good father, and that you love us, you love us so much that you would die for us. And if, 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 if this is the first time we're hearing this good news, this adoption good news gospel, uh, may we uh, come and talk to someone after service about that. And may we learn what it looks like to be part of your family. And for those of us who are Christians, as we take the bread and wine, would we be reminded that in all the ways we have failed to be pro-life, in all the ways uh, both in omission and commission of sins where we've been anti-life, would you forgive us? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us a sense that... That we, are, that we are restored to you. God, would you just work in our lives? Make us people that love life. Make us men and women that are willing to risk. Make us men and women that are willing to share this good news with the world around us. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.